0: So welcome to our podcast on Wonder AAC podcast today we're so excited I'm Sarah and and I'm Brenda Monte, <laughs> <laughs> and we're here with um two occupational therapists and we're really excited because the to- the um topic today is mobility matters so we'll have you introduce yourselves Melanie do you want to go ahead?
1: Yeah, my name is Melanie Thompson. Um, I'm an OT that works at private practice predominantly out in Arizona, Um, and I got into power mobility about seven years ago, and uh, it has been a game changer for me, so I'm very excited to talk about it.
2: Great, thanks. And Heidi? I'm Heidi Brislin. I'm an occupational therapist. I work one day a week for the special ed tech center, and I work in the Edmonds School District, and in addition, I have a very small private practice where I do power mobility and kind of access evaluations. And, um, I got started. Um, I mean, off and on through my OT career, I've done power mobility things, but I really got started with pediatric power mobility about, um, probably six or seven years ago as well. Melanie.
0: Well, that's funny. You're on the same, same path there, as far as you got started, but, um, you you have different settings. So Melanie, you said you're private and, um, and Heidi in the schools, Mm -hmm. but you're both OTs. So tell me a little bit about what it's like to step outside your domain a little bit, getting into this power um, mobility. And then also just what are your thoughts generally about independent mobility? Um, Heidi, we'll start with you.
2: Well, I'll answer the domain question. I think as an occupational therapist, I did adult rehab for many years before I worked in the school, so I've always done power mobility. I've always been part of like the seating team and, um, you know, different things because being able to move um, is just an essential occupation to be able to do all the things that you need to do for your um, activities of daily living. Mm-hmm. Um, my thoughts about pediatric power mobility have definitely changed as I've, uh, you know, as I started doing pediatric, because I think the framework um, when you do adults, you have people who know how to move their body independently. And so you're teaching them to drive the chair from the get go. And with children, you're, they've never, these children we're working with, with really complicated bodies um, that don't cooperate often. Um, that we're um, teaching them to move. So when I look at pediatric power mobility, I'm looking at it from a developmental progression, and so you have to kind of go back to you know your you know just the normal typical development and how do kids typically develop movement. And when you put a child in the chair and they move for the first time, you need to be thinking about, you know, why do kids go? Why do kids stop? Why do they turn and look at things? And and that you're really looking at it from a developmental perspective. And, you know, I think it's, um, I mean, I think every child deserves this opportunity um, and it's supported by research and in the schools, you know, I work in the schools. I do most of my power mobility um, work in the schools and, you know, we're tasked to provide evidence-based practice and it is evidence-based and it improves so many skills, you know, Mm -hmm. um, their cognition, their language perceptual play, social skills, you name it. So, um, that's kind of my kind of thoughts. It's, it's just really, really important.
3: When you put it that way, it's everyone's domain, right? hmm Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Melanie, yeah. what about you? I know that in the world of private practice, physical therapists are the main people who are doing, um, referrals for mobility. So did it, how does this land with you?
1: It was, it was a definite um, mental shift for sure. Just because mobility has always been considered a PT's domain for sure. But I agree with Heidi that accessing your environment is OT. Like you being able to get to your toys, you being able to get to the kitchen or follow mom or do whatever is independent living. And that thus makes it an OT domain as well. And I agree with Brenda in all honesty, you could fight for it to be a speech domain as well, because if I don't understand what you want, but you can drive to the fridge to tell me that you're hungry or something as that that's communication. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like any form of mobility, we're talking about powered mobility today, but any mobility is a God given right. And something Mm -hmm. that child, every child seeks movement. And so it's something that's highly motivating and it gives me a tremendous amount of insight into my kids, their personalities, their likes, their dislikes that um, without
3: it, I wouldn't know. Mm. I really like what Heidi said about development. And I know Melanie, I've heard you talk about pots and pans before, but, um, you know, sometimes Melanie will put a kid out in a chair and they just do circles. And so then there's a, there's a sidebar conversation with parents or Oh, they don't know what they're doing Oh, I guess they, I guess they're not ready yet. So what speak a little bit about what does it look like the first time you put a child in a chair? And is that, what's normal? Sleep. yeah, Yeah. I
1: think. (laughs) normal. The only thing I look for in that very first time I'm putting a kid in his chair is do they understand that they are making it go? And I don't care if it's circles or not. Circles are not, does not mean they don't understand. And again, I feel like it's a, um, um, I for, I'm not the words, but again, a God-given right that we know what's behind us. We as neurotypical people know and we can turn around and look and see what's behind us and that if you are not mobile and you have never had that capability before doing donuts and circles to scan your environment is not considered a bad thing and so if they get stuck and will only do circles then i'll change the game up a little bit and see if they can hit a different switch or i'll change that switch to make it a go or i'll do something else but a child that just does circles learns that they hit that switch or the joystick or whatever they did and they made it move and that's the only thing that i need to understand is that child understands that they had control of it
2: hmm.
3: mm-hmm. do you have anything to add about that heidi what does it look like when i know we work with re melanie and i work with really young children and you're probably working with more school age based but does it what does it look like when you put a kid in a chair and how do you know that they're making connections?
2: Well, honestly, I just work really hard to set them up for success. So the first time, you know, I had a little guy with CVI and he kind of lived down here. And so, you know, we started off just, you know, he lived with his, you know, head down and his, everything on his lap was like his, what he was, you know, his whole world was there. And so we started with a proximity switch that I just held um, so that he, when he moved his head, it would um, move. And you know, he, you know he you know you want them to be like you did that, you know, and give them that opportunity. And so, you know, I think it's every time you put someone in a chair, I just it's like you you want to start with success. I mean, you want to give them success, you want to end on this successful note. And um, I have a, I have a story I could tell. Um, I have a the first three kiddos I did power mobility with in the schools were all in the same school. And so we moved them, we had one loner chair that I'd gotten and we moved one day, did all three of them in the chair just to kind of see. So talk about moving and adjusting things or whatever. And so my last student um, had cerebral palsy, CVI, um, had just gotten an eye gaze device, um, was using that pretty well severe contractures and if that little boy could move his head 15 degrees in either direction I'm being really generous and um the team was like you're not going to put him in that chair are you and I'm like heck yeah and we put him in the chair and he was using um three switch we had had all three on because we didn't know any better and um he within five minutes turned that chair in a circle and drove up to a friend and stopped. Mm, just, and, just and that changed everybody's perception of that young man.
3: I bet it did. That is amazing for lots of things. One comes to mind and that is the CBI. Cause um, often we don't get referrals for AAC because they have C- CBI. So they must not be able to see The, we, we make some assumptions and that's a, if you know much about CVI, it's a really broad diagnosis. It's fluctuating. It, it improves with age. And I'm talking about, you know, from zero to age eight, it it improves a lot, just like all vision. So it's like, you think, well, why would we put someone who can't really see in a powered chair? And it's like, well, um, blind people actually still walk. Right. So that's Mm -hmm. part of it. The other part of it is that um, they're not blind and that CVI lets us know a lot about vision. And I know Melanie has seen that a lot of times too. Like people, parents will say, I don't think they can see. And then they drive her up and stop. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that um, Melanie has, I know she probably has a lot of stories, but I want to talk about um, how young is too young, Melanie.
1: Well, I I think that putting them in a chair, just to touch on that for a second, also gives me insight into what they see how far Mm. can they see how large of objects can they see and so I um I that is not a um a pitfall vision is I mean obviously it's required to know where you are but it is I would still put a chair a kid in a chair to give them that opportunity to see what they can do we um I put kids in chairs as young as 12 months um, and that is because kids should start walking around 12 months. Right. And so my kids have already missed out on learning opportunities, not because they are not capable or cognitively, um, capable of learning, but because they don't move to get to the same kinds of, of, um, opportunities to learn. Right. And so as Brenda touched on my, my spiel to my parents is that, you know, your toddler or not toddler, you're infant can crawl around six to nine months and they crawl over to the kitchen cabinet and they pull out the pots and pans Mm -hmm. and they hear how they clink together and they see how they stack together and they are making all kinds of connections and learning opportunities in that moment that did not happen because we keep our kids strapped in a high chair and mom and dad thought you know what let's bring out some pots and pans and have them play but that's not how childhood development works and so And this kind of goes inside with the research behind what we talked about earlier as far as giving kids the opportunity is that, you know, if you think about typical childhood development, you know, they get up on their hands and knees and they start rocking and they rock too far and I, I caught myself, that protective reaction. That was cool. Maybe I can do that again. And they take another one. Right. And it is, we don't then go to the other side of the house and say, come here, Johnny, and expect them to crawl the whole way. So we have to give them the opportunity mm-hmm. to learn how to move. And I think that's, what's very different via, via pediatrics and, and um, adults.
0: Mm-hmm. One, one of the questions that we were thinking about asking you too was about you know how does independent mod- mobility relate to AAC communication? But I mean, we just keep hearing it in everything you're saying, mm-hmm. right? Right. Right from the beginning, you gave an example that you're gonna go go see what's in the fridge, go mm-hmm. see what you want, go explore your um your environment, and then that invites communication too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking at something, a parent is likely to say oh you found a book about whatever let's look at it and Mm -hmm. read it um is there anything else you want to add about that Heidi
2: well and I think you know with the the power chair you just have to you know you set up opportunities so you know we've done things like cut up books and paste the page you know laminate and paste the pages along the wall so that they have a reason to stop like we're going to stop and read the next page of the book or you know, and sometimes just let them, I had one gal who loved to smell flowers and she'd drive into the middle of this blooming bush every time, (laughs) you know, she'd stop when she got there, but she just wanted to smell the flowers. So, you know, I think the thing to know about these power chairs, especially for kids who are going to use some type of alternative access, meaning like, you know, a head array, a fiber optic switch, um, something besides a joystick is that chair for that child is mission control. It gives them access to everything they could ever possibly want to do. And that's, you know, and AAC is, is you know, so crucial because often like with um, using the proximity switches for the powered chair, you see their um, access skills really grow and develop. And it makes using the AAC system so much easier because that motor pathway, you know, is getting a lot of practice in that power chair. So you know, it's, it's, it's a life changer.
0: Yeah. I know that we've been on consults together, Heidi, and the team is problem solving ideas for communication, Think about high tech AAC. And then you're hearing, they're also getting a new chair. And there's all these things that come to mind, right? Your brain goes, Oh, well, <laughs> XYZ. <laughs> Because there's so many things to think about, right? Like you said, it's the the central.
2: Well, and and going back to like it being everybody's domain, I really try um, in the school district, if we're doing an evaluation and we're writing the letter of medical necessity, that everybody is signing that letter. You know, every part of the team is because we're talking about, you know, we need you know, this type of head array and we need this um, switch interface so they can talk to their AAC device and we need a mount for the chair. And so it's really not just, you know, just PT or just OT or it, it really takes that whole village and you've got to look at what are the expectations at school when and home so that when you're looking at that chair you know when you're building that chair you're making sure that it's going to meet the students needs in all of their environments and so often i would have um students go to like you know one of the big medical centers that does wheelchair valves, and they'd come back with something and i'd be like this isn't going to work at school um and so i really think schools where they spend most of their awake hours um during the first. Um, you know, 15 years of their life. Um, so I think we need to make sure that we're, we're, we're at the table, um, helping make those decisions. Melanie, mm-hmm. I'm
3: sure you have something to add to that. I have so much to say.
1: Um, <laughs> I I have to piggyback on what Heidi said in that powered mobility, changes the trajectory of our kids. I've always said, well, not always, since the past seven years that it's my mission to get my kids with complicated bodies walking and talking, no matter what that looks like, because it does change the trajectory. Our kids with complicated bodies unfortunately get lowballed a lot by society, even by well-intended teachers and aides and therapists and so forth. And if I say, Johnny, do you want to play with Elmo or Cookie Monster? And, you know, typical Tommy turns around and runs away. Our assumption is that he didn't want to play with either of those. But a kiddo in a complicated body, if I say Cookie Monster or Elmo, and they don't respond, it's like, oh, they didn't understand. Mm -hmm. My kids, if they drive to something oh, I didn't know that's what she wanted. Again, thank you for telling me. And it gives me such great insight into their world. And the kiddo in school that can drive to their classroom door when it's time to go to music class, you're a smart cookie. We better teach you your A, B's and C's and other skills because you've already demonstrated that you have really good problem solving skills. So I just think it's, it's looking at the whole picture, the whole body, um, because they all are intertwined. OTPT, speech, teacher aid, everything, it is intertwined in this. I initially got into uh, power mobility because of AAC. So I was, mm-hmm. am an uh, evaluator for AAC in Arizona. And I had a dear friend convince me to go to this class um, in at ASL in Texas. And if you guys haven't heard of this, I highly recommend that everyone go to this class. It is a free continuing ed class. All you have to do is get to Texas. They'll pay for your hotel and training and food. You just need to actually get there. And ASL stands for for Adaptive Switch Lab. So um, and I went to the class because the class, the premise was that they're going to teach you about how to interface your wheelchair, whether it's a sip and puff or head switches or joystick or whatever, how to access iPads and AAC devices and other um, ECUs and so forth. And I'm like, oh, as an AAC evaluator, I should know these things. And I remember sitting in this class, by the way, I've gone multiple times, so worth it. (laughs) And I remember sitting in this class the very first day, and they were talking about seating and positioning. And then they were showing all these videos of highly complicated kids. Um, driving these power chairs, and I'm, I'm going to put myself out there. I had never even considered power mobility for any of my kids. I didn't think they can do it. I didn't know enough about it to think that they could do it. And so um, I'm like, wow, I wonder if my kids could. And so we arranged for a time and Arlene from ASL came out and we picked six of our most complicated kids. And guess what? All six of them did it all six of them. I have a video of a kiddo driving down with one switch to go uh, take a walk with his grandpa and they're taking a walk on the sidewalk together. And, um, whether it was big or little, they all demonstrated that they understood that they were doing it. And so, wow, I, I, I undershot my kids. Um, so I think that power mobility plays a big part within life and AAC.
3: That's so a powerful um, I, I was that friend and I was the, I think the only SLP at ASL that year, yes, were. um, but I, I do want to plug it for SLPs because, um, you have, I, I, we as SLPs have almost, we have zero training on seating and positioning and the way that you put someone in a seat and you put help position their bodies a hundred percent affects how they can control their head. And if they have, of the ability to, the way they control their, their arms. And guess what? Um, most access is through their head, their eyes, or their hands. And so seating positioning is a hundred percent related to AAC. And, um, so I don't think it's taught, I don't think it's taught at all. And I don't, and, and even those of us in AAC, um, are trial and error, but definitely, we, we, we haven't had formal instruction on that. So that was life. That was the most monumental change for me in helping kids access AAC is understanding seating and positioning, but Melanie and I do an evaluation and we get the seating and positioning down and then they can do these, they can do, they can, they have head control now. And so they can do eye gaze or, or they do switches or they um, whatever they can do. And then, then it comes down to Oh, but your chair doesn't work because it's a stroller and it doesn't hold an eye gaze device. And the other thing I just want to say is that the mobility matters because um, those sturdier mobile mobile chairs can hold our AAC devices that are um but big and bulky because they the, the, the eye gaze requires that size, right? So I, uh, one thing that Melanie is just invaluable with is making sure that we get the right mounting equipment to get to, so that they can go on a chair so that they're independent in their mobility and their AAC at their school. And, but, but let's, that, that kind of leads us into how did we go from, oh, let's go to this conference and learn about state and positioning to like these total systems and both, both. um, Both Melanie and Heidi are on this podcast today because they were trailblazers in their state. So Melanie, since you've already started the story, let's have you finish kind of where that, how that, how that ASL, uh, Adaptive Speech-Up Conference um, led to all the things. And then Heidi, we can't wait to hear about yours. Yeah. Well, and one quick thought too, is that a powered mobility is
1: motivating. So when you're talking about AAC devices, I hate to say this to speech therapists, but sometimes... They don't want to talk that much, but I guarantee they want to move. If you've watched any toddler ever, the family is exhausted because they're always chasing them because they're always moving. So it is really easy to put the kid in a chair and find a access method because they are highly motivated to do that. And if they can access it to drive a power chair, guess what? They can do the same thing to do the AAC device. So I feel like that was important to add in there. Mm-hmm, but definitely. after, um, after ASL, Um, I went to the conference. Um, I may have even gone twice. And um, I came back and realized there was a major disconnect here in Arizona about the process of how to get kids in power chairs. And I, I understand that there's different processes in different states and so forth, but here you have to pass a test. You would have to basically do a driver's test, just like you do at age 16 and prove that you are capable of safely operating this and following directions and navigating around equipment and so on and so forth. Um, But what's not fair is I have these complicated kids and I think they can do it, but I they have not had the experience. They've never had the opportunity. So the disconnect that we found is that if I even made a referral or a recommendation that Johnny could do it is that I have nothing to do with the evaluation process, is that they would then have to go to the PT evaluators. And unless I knew that he needs it at this speed with this control and on all of these things, they're gonna put him in a chair with a joystick with most of my kids can't do, and they're gonna fail the test. And again, it is not testing them on their abilities, you're testing them on lack of experience. And so there was a major disconnect that the referring PTs and OTs never actually met or knew the evaluating PTs. And so what we did is, um, we again had ASL come to us out in Arizona and they had a conference out here. It was a one day, um, let's throw everything at them. Um, and then, uh, I'm going to say Brenda was a little bit, uh, Sneaky in the aspect of what we did is we contacted the evaluating agencies that do um, for power chairs, and we told them about this free training opportunity for their therapists um, and that they should come. What a great networking opportunity and so forth. So even though that the PTs I happen to know did not want to come to this conference because they felt like they already knew it. They came, which created a major dialogue and shift because now everybody has the same information everybody's on the same playing field and the referring therapist now knows and has a, a connection to the evaluating therapist. And so that one conference, I want, I'm not going to say that's all that we had to do, but that one is definitely where things started to shift here within Arizona. And so, um, that was that was the beginning. And then it turned into, I was able to get some loaner chairs or chairs donated. And so I then developed basically driver's ed for these kiddos. So these kiddos can come to me and we do driver's ed and they can drive to anything they want. I don't care because I can make anything therapeutic and we play with it. And then we get out and we get in the chair and they drive to whatever they want. And we play with it and we keep it on a more developmental model. But I, in essence, give them the skills that I know those evaluators are looking for so that they can then pass the test
0: way more fun than your typical driver's ed i'm sure yes (laughs) we'd all really like to see that (laughs) thank you melanie yeah it's been it's been such a
3: fun ride and (laughs) i remember that one day and i remember um i remember literally saying you know referring pt meet evaluating PT who's in, and we were nobodies, you guys like no one even knew who we were no and we even did it through our nonprofit because nobody was paying for this you know so but it was just like we we weren't i mean i'm a speech pathologist <laughs> i mean <laughs> you know and melanie's an occupational therapist so we weren't even part of the picture um so but it kind of made us neutral in some ways because we weren't PTs. But yeah, that, that was huge. Um, so Heidi, I know that Adaptive Switch Lab definitely played a role. By the way, just a side note, we went back with those evaluating mm-hmm. SLPs. Yeah. no, uh, evaluating physical therapists in the state of Arizona to Adaptive Switch Lab. We already knew the information, but we went with them just to build report, just to build relationships. But Heidi, tell us about your journey.
2: So my journey um, started several years ago at Closing the Gap, um, and I went to a class that um, Karen Kangas, who's an amazing occupational therapist who does a lot of power mobility and access work with her um, students and clients. And um, I always go to Closing the Gap with a couple students, you know, two or three students in mind. And I had just gotten a student, eighteen-year-old, um, no, no access no mobility, no communication. And so as I'm sitting in this pre-conference with Karen, I'm getting like all these gazillion ideas of things that I can go back and, and do. And so I, um, I'm chatting with her and then she connects me, um, with, um, the folks from adaptive switch labs. And so they worked with me, we got a loaner chair, um, and then, um, I hadn't even gone to the class. I had just done this pre-conference with the two of them and as many classes I could, as I could take in that, you know, from them while I was at closing the gap. And so we, um, got, uh, like an adult size loaner for my high schooler and we got a smaller loaner, um, for, um, my three elementary students and just kind of dove in there, not knowing, just knowing what I learned from the class and trying things and, um, you know, reaching out to um, the team from Adaptive Switch Labs who are amazing and mm-hmm. want to help you. And eventually um, they had been working on trying to come out and help me because we had so many children we were trying to do at once. And um, so they came out, they also did a class while they were out here and it was a mixture of school therapists and, um, you know, people from all sorts of, you know, from adults to pediatrics, um, around the, in Western Washington. And so we did that class and I brought a whole team, I mean, my whole posse and, um, cause really everybody, um, on my school team said like drank the Kool-Aid. And so, you know, when they came out to help us with these evaluations, we had a team of like 10 people there. And, um, so from there, um, you know, I just continued to, Develop skills. And then I um, talked my PT partner into going down to Texas to adaptive switch labs for a class. And I can tell you it's the best seating training I have ever had in my life. Every time I sit there and listen to the seating training, I learn more things. Um, and when we were driving back to the airport, I'm like, well, you know, we just got a denial on this one chair. Um, And we had to take video of her doing like a driving test, which is not required in Washington state. And um, so we had to prove that she could go through a door, pull up to a table and stop and avoid obstacles. And so I was like, this shouldn't be how it is, you know, because when you looked at the Washington state law, it said that they needed to, there was, was, there's three little bullet points. So bullet point one was they had to be able to independently and safely operate the chair which is crazy for kids. Kids don't independently and safely operate their body if they are on their feet most of the time. (laughs) So, um, but then you got to like B and C and it was like, it was the only way for them to move independently. Um, it was age appropriate mobility, but we could never get past A. And so my PT partner, her name is Cheryl Davis, and she's um, just another real trailblazer in the power mobility world. So she contacted her PT lobbyist and the two of us went down to the healthcare administration in Olympia. And we met with the director of, um, medicaid and basically said hey this is what the research says this is what's happening um this is not appropriate for children and um she was like you know nobody's ever brought that to our attention
0: mm-hmm. we need
2: to work on modifying that um washington administrative code and about a year later um the wac was changed to where um now people under 21 qualify for a power chair if it is medically necessary and non-experimental. And there is another little um, piece of language. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was like one of my (laughs) biggest accomplishments. So I'm really proud of the work that um, Cheryl and I did. Um, And then there is another little caveat in the Washington um, Administrative Code where if their power chair cannot be transported, um, in their family vehicle, and it's so far from school or whatever, they can also get a backup man. They can also have a manual chair, so they will pay for two chairs. Wow. Um, so it's um, finding, you know, finding the right um, ATP, but um, in in Washington, you know, definitely getting that law changed has made a huge difference. Um, I do want to say how I find a um, an assistive tech professional is someone the The person who works for the wheelchair supplier companies, multiple people are assistive tech professionals. Melody is one. Um, but the person who is helping you get order your chair um, and build your chair is an um, assistive tech professional. And um, I just started bringing them in and um, interviewing them. Wow. And so yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, so you know, my, my thing was, is I was like, you know, I live in a rural area. I, can you provide excellent customer service to my students and their families? Mm-hmm. If something breaks down, are you going to be able to come to them to take care of that? Mm-hmm. Um, when we build a chair, I, how long is it going to take for the quote to come back? You know, and, um, So that's kind of how I started finding people to work with. And then I usually, the parents really choose who you work with. And so I usually say, these are, these are the choices. This is the experience I've had with them and let them kind of choose, but I just interview them. And if they, some have been very honest, it's like, I don't have the staffing to do that for you right now, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: um, but I have a great ATP I work with now. So, well, I don't know.
3: I don't want to get in the weeds here, but I'm really interested in the verbiage around uh, the the backup manual chair, because here in Arizona, you have to have a manual chair first, because once you get a power chair, you don't qualify for a manual chair. And the reality is, is those power chairs are expensive and they don't, they don't work in every vehicle. And there are limitations to the power chair Mm -hmm. and science camp is not as, uh, you know, power chair adaptable as a, as a, you know, a beach chair stroller or whatever. So the, the right to, um, power and um, manual mobility is is something that is kind of not not uh, a standard. So I'm, I'm interested in that because yeah. um, we've run across some issues there. Is, did, you, or did you change a the law there or are you just working on the rights or what, tell, tell
0: well, us about that. Brenda, so, before Heidi answers, I just have to say for those who are just listening to the audio part of this later, when Heidi mentioned the backup chair, Melanie and Brenda's jaws dropped. So, you know, we know this is something important. (laughs) And when,
3: and when Heidi said we changed the law, we were all visually clapping, but yes. So there's that too. Um, I believe
2: it was part of the whole, um, change in the WAC. So when they, so there was some stuff about, there was criteria on what you could do to get a second chair. Like there were very few people that qualified um, for a second chair. Um, it was extended a little bit. Um, and so it kind of, um, you know, I think if you, you can fit those kids in that category, most of them, um, I also in my letters talk about, you know, this is a child and, you know, my typically developing child, you know, I'm going to, you know, especially to get like an attendant control, which lets the parent drive the chair, which insurances don't like to pay for. But I talk about how, like with a typically developing child, there are times when you let them go independently and walk and move. There are times you're holding their hand. There are times they might be in a stroller. There are times they might be in the grocery cart and that children with disabilities deserve all our, you know. I don't know if deserve is probably not the word I use. I probably use something much stronger, but it's not coming to me. Um, you know, deserve those same opportunities. And the parents deserve to be able to have choices in mobility for their children.
3: And WAC stands for what?
2: Washington Administrative Code.
3: Okay. So it's
2: the lo- the laws in, in Washington. that so govern- Every
3: state has their own administrative codes. And so mm-hmm. it's it's important that people know that, that people can dive into that that should be publicly accessible. And to find out kind of what is the verbiage. And that's that's how you can better write justification letters as if you know what the verbiage is. Mm-hmm. And if the verbiage is wrong, Heidi is proof that then just change the, then work on changing the verbiage. I mean, if it takes a year, right? And I always say this about AAC, if it takes six months or if it takes two years, it's still worth it. At the end, they're communicating. If it takes a year to change a law at the end, think about the end of a year, people getting access to mobility. That's worth the fight. You know, I think we we're instant gratification, right? We, we want things changed quickly. And that just, the government doesn't work that way. And we're, you know, they don't, they don't work on, they don't have our sense of urgency. So, um, but that fight is worth it. And I, I'm, I'm really excited about all of that. And, and super well and
2: I can I can tell you it really wasn't even a fight Cheryl and I walked out of that meeting with the lobbyist and I'm like I think we just changed the whack I think we just changed <laughs> the law because and I it think was,
3: the law was written for adults yes
2: like, it, it, it totally was yeah. and when we um talked to her you know um she was just like this totally makes sense and it was like no one has brought this up before oh. and so for years we've not been giving children access because nobody thought to bring it up and so Cheryl and I were able to kind of read and make comments um you know there's a public comment time for any of the changes in the law and we were able to read and make comments and kind of and it ended up coming out like we were just you know looking at changing a few things you know like age appropriate mobility and not independent and safe and then when it got changed to medically necessary and non-experimental I think both of our jaws dropped um But, you know, I'd say if you're living somewhere and that's a barrier, go try to, you know, work with your lobbyist and um, get a meeting with um, the someone at Medicare or Medicaid, sorry, and um, just ask the question, explain what normal development is, explain what the research says and just ask you know, the question, cause maybe your state, no one has, no one has said anything about it. You've just done it because that's been the practice for the state.
1: Mm-hmm. So Heidi, I have to give you kudos because you've opened the door for so many more kids. That is just beautiful and glorious. And I, it's interesting because of the fighting that I've had to do most of the times it has been fighting, dare I say, with other therapists. Um, and I think old school mentality. So I, my youngest that has gotten approved for a wheelchair was 15 months. And again, I think that's glorious because that means we're not waiting till they're five or 10 to start introducing mobility and, and it got approved. But the evaluating PT really fought me on it and was not willing to do the peer-to-peer with the doctor and other things. And her rationale was, well, what if she drives into the street and doesn't look for cars? And my thing is, is that that is actually a taught skill. We hold our kids hands and we Mm -hmm. teach them to look left and look right before we cross the street. And we do that honestly for years before we ever trust our kids to cross the street safely by themselves. And so again, I don't feel like our kids have to be held to a higher standard Mm -hmm. than what should be age appropriate. So they're not gonna learn those skills unless they are moving because little, little kiddo in a wheelchair or stroller that mom pushes, they're not looking left and looking right because they don't have to. Mm-hmm. So I think that mobility provides that opportunity for them to even know that they have control over this or that there are consequences. And again, that just explodes communication and, and cognition.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, can you guys talk about buy-in at schools? Because what we have found down here is sometimes kids get a chair, they get to school and the school has turned off the power because they don't want him to hit anybody. Right. Or they don't want him to, um, they don't want him to hurt anybody. So, and I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not advocating for anyone to get hurt here, but what is the, what, what has been some successful ways of presenting powered mobility in elementary schools in particular, I think um, where, so that there's there's a um, a more buy-in and less just turn off the chair so everyone stays safe mentality. Melanie, I think that you have to make it a
1: you have to break it down and make it achievable for the team because I think it's overwhelming to think that little Johnny, who's five and in this power chair with all these other kindergartners, um, and isn't safe and needs all that attention in order for him to be able to drive. I break it down to: I don't need Johnny to have his chair on twenty-four-seven. But if you can give me at circle time when it's ready to line up at the door, can can you take the five minutes that takes in order, um, or have the aide or teacher or something help with that one thing? Can can they be the line leader when it's time to go to music class or whatever? Can we do just little in increments throughout the day? And I try to break it down in the theory of you know if, if we're trying to make gains, neurological changes and independence and learning skills, if I go to the gym one hour a week, which is what they would get with me for therapy, the gains you're going to make are minimal. You're not going to see any change. If you can get 30 minutes a day, five days a week at school, you're going to see much bigger gains. So I think instead of saying, okay, they have to have their chair on all the time, we break it down to here's the times that they can have control, and the teacher or aide can be with them to make sure that everyone stays safe.
3: So, and, going, and they, they got to know the kill sh- the kill switch. Yes, right. <laughs> there's
1: always a kill switch. There's, there's always a, a kill switch.
3: <laughs> so I'm well, thinking.
1: I- oh, go ahead. Sorry.
0: No, go ahead. Let me finish with that.
1: Well, because uh, I think that the teachers, I say this because I have a lot of OT students. And so I've seen it a hundred times in the fact that they want to stop the chair when you're still six feet away from what they're supposed to get to because they are nervous, not because the kid is incapable, but because they're Mm -hmm. nervous that they're going to run into something. But functional driving does mean you can get up to the table and stop. So we have to learn how to do those small increments. And if you think again about typical development, those toddlers hit their head on the kitchen counters and they run into walls and they do all mm. kinds of things. They run into things. So it's not fair to expect that our kids will not run into things. We have to minimize the damage. So if they're going to run into a chair that I know is going to scoot, let them run into the chair. If they're mm. going to run over a child, obviously you hit the kill switch, but you have to at least give them the opportunity or they're never going to learn where they are in space and how to get around the child.
0: Right. Right. Well, I'm thinking of this in a similar way. You know, we're thinking they have the chair at school. How are they going to use it? I was thinking before Brenda mentioned, you know, for those of us who are on a team at school maybe and thinking, okay, this has made me think about a student who I think should have powered mobility now. What are my next steps? But Melanie, like you said, thinking about, well, hey, what are some opportunities that powered mobility would provide during, could provide during their day? You know, 10 minutes during circle time each time. The inclusion of this you know the piece and the student's line leader, the student has independence. So um I see it working for buy-in in that sense, too. Heidi, did you well, have something to add?
2: Yeah. um, and the school's kind of power mobility is exciting in the schools. like if the team is kind of involved in that beginning thing. And so really, what I spent a lot of time doing is, you know, training the team. Um, especially in this one classroom because they had three kids and so we we had pictures of like where the everything needed to be adjusted for them and I'm like you know if you can do I'm such I always tell people try not to do more than 15 minutes at a time because cognitively it's a lot of work to drive that chair and which means they'll do about 30 because it's hard to stop at 15 (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and so I would um make sure that like the team, the team at the school would get trained for how to operate the chair. And that included their parent educators. And those three kids got in that chair nearly every day mm. for the rest of the school year. They would take them out to, you know, someone would get a turn at recess with their age, with their class and, You know, in Foursquare, you know, playing Foursquare, and they would just find times during the day. And then, in addition to that, there would be, you know, if they were working with the OT or the PT, um, you know, they might do some specific kind of training as they were developing skills on, you know, going through a doorway or different things. And, um, you know, and so I think it's empowering your team having them know where that kill switch is that, you know, you're going to be able to stop the chair. Here's three different places you can stop it. Um, and um, I think it's, it's just really, if you just, if it's like, oh, we're just going to do it when Heidi comes, you know, it, that doesn't, doesn't work so well. And so I, I would go the first several times they would drive um, and then it would be like, okay, it's, it's, You know, let me, I want to see you do it. And then just really give them the skills and the confidence um, to feel comfortable doing that, knowing that you're like a text away, you know, and, um, you know, then I think you can get that buy in.
0: So, what if, um, you know, you have a small team, or, you know, let's be real right now, there's a lot of changing pieces. Teams, you know, have changed since spring or even maybe part of this year, right? Um, and that can be really hard. Do you guys have any advice for someone who, regardless of their role, is sitting there right now thinking, I want to do this. I've never done this before. I don't even really know exactly what it means, but what, what do I do?
1: I think there's so many resources within every um, every environment you can. The, you have your, your ATPs and the, the wheelchair vendors, want the kids to use their chairs and they will be available to help, not necessarily teach them how to drive, but they will be available if the chair got stuck and I don't know how to help. And they can be on call the reps for the different vendors for the wheelchairs. Also, they want to sell their products guys, which means they're going to be willing to work with therapists and provide loaners to kids, to teachers or school-based and so forth. Because if they provide that and the kid can do it. Guess what? That's more sales for them too. So they're highly motivated, um, to work with teams. So even if you don't have the resources, um, I feel like there's always people available. If you can network and find those people that will help you build this, it does take work. Um, there's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a learning curve to it, but it's highly doable. And the minute that you see your kids moving for the first time, it is worth every cent of time that you put into it because there's nothing more magical than watching them move for the first time.
2: Um, yeah. Well, and the one thing I want to say is that, um, you know, if you're, if you're lucky with your vendor, you have an ATP who might be a therapist who might be an OT or a PT, but most ATPs are not. And kind of one of the things that I've, um, run into is they're like, Oh, you can't get that on the chair or that won't work on the chair. You can't get this. And so, you know, if there's something you think your child needs and you've kind of collaborated with, you know, the vendor, um, I know I'm more than happy to kind of help problem solve if you're in Washington, if you're in Washington or really any state, um, to kind of, I had a lot of people help me. So I've got a lot of pain forward to do. And, um, you know, I'm happy to help, but it's like, if you decided that this is what you think your child needs to be successful in their chair and your ATP is like, no, 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 you know, you need to be, you know, you're the therapist, you're the clinician, you know, more about seating and positioning. You have more background and education in that than the ATP does. So stand up for what you think that child needs.
0: Yeah. Good message hearing a lot of that advocating for these for these students. So one thing we're asking
3: everyone as we begin to wrap up is at the end is just what do you what do you if if you if you heard nothing today if all of this just elicited a lot of yeah buts. Yeah but this, yeah but that. Um what do you want people to know about what mobility means for students with physical disabilities?
1: I think movement is motivating, period, mic drop. The kids want to do it. And because they want to do it, they're gonna give you the best motor ability that they have because they wanna do it. And because they want to do it, it's student-led and directed. And I, as a therapist, gained so much insight into my kid by what they drive to, who they love the most, what's, you know, where they want to go. And that is invaluable to me. And a child with a complicated body, any insight I have into their world and their lives is worth it. And so I think mobility is motivating and that's my my key.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. Heidi. Um, I think one of the things I want to, I totally agree with Melody, um, but I want to say like starting out in the schools, um, it can feel like daunting and big and overwhelming. And I want you to know that you're not alone. There are a lot of people out there who want to help you either because they're going to profit from helping you or they genuinely, which is fine. You know, the vendors should make you know money for their um, products, but there are people who like genuinely from the bottom of their heart want to help you and um, want to see more kids get mobility. So find your village um, and find your village at school, find your village in the the therapy community or the power mobility community, and there, you don't have to be alone. There are people who wanna help you.
0: That's great advice. Yeah, and um, if you are in Washington state and you um, want some support, Heidi, Brislin supports us through um, consultation um, with our Special Education Technology Center consultations. So that's another way to get to get in touch with Heidi and to get some support. Um, before we wrap up, I just have to mention that um, I heard Melanie was nominated for an award, and I wouldn't. Would you mind just telling us about that, Melanie?
1: I am highly honored that I just found out this past month that I won the Impact Award from the National Board of OTs um, to recognize there were four winners. So to recognize the impact that I have made to my clients and within our community. So um, there was a lot of behind the scenes people sending in things to nominate me, which I was completely unaware of. Um, But it has been incredibly humbling and exciting, and I I can't even fathom. Like it's just amazing.
3: So. I won!
1: Congratulations!
0: Congratulations. We can Thank see
3: you. That. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I know. I, I love that there's some recognition here because the she really is kind of the only one in Arizona that's giving kids driver's ed, mm-hmm. and it's paying off. Lots and lots of kids are getting. I think she figured she maybe over a hundred chairs that she's helped kids get so far. So, um, there's just, there's a mm-hmm. lot, she's done a lot for the community here in Arizona. So I'm so glad mm-hmm. of that recognition, and we are just so thankful for both of you. We know that you have huge caseloads and students working under you and emails and calls and voicemails and un, responded to, and you took the hour out today. Mm-hmm. So, um, we really appreciate you guys coming on and talking. And I think what's, what's important is the, what you both continue to say, you know, which is that they, that, that kids deserve the mobility and the, and the movement is motivating and putting those together. We can learn a lot about our kids. And there's some kids that because of their complex bodies and maybe even lack of facial expression, we don't know what their currency is. And, and, you know, we don't know what they'll work hard for and until you, see them drive straight to, we had a boy that drove straight to the um, poster of a girl on the poster. And we were like, okay, all right, and he, by the way, he was a teenager, so everything about that was super age appropriate. And uh, you know, other kids will drive to the swing every time, and we realize, wow, that you know, you need to get out of your chair and in in a vestibular situation, you know, on a daily basis, or in, it's a sensory diet around that because you're showing us that, right? And then, by the way, let's put that on the AAC device because we didn't know that how much you liked that until we saw it through the motor. So they all go together, and there definitely are going to be people that will be like, I thought it was the AAC podcast, and we didn't even talk about that. But um, actually, it all goes together because it's just, it's all one body, mm-hmm. right? And we all communicate through movement.
0: <laughs> yeah. And like you said, you both said, it's changing perspectives of these students and, and seeing all, all that's there and all the potential. And our chat is blowing up with congratulations for Melanie and your award. Appreciation for Heidi, changing the whack and being an advocate. So Yeah, yeah. Pretty exciting. Thank you all. All right. Thank Thank you you all for coming. Thank you. Bye. Thanks everyone.